We continue to move through the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, I'm going to start reading chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. So through all this dialogue, finally Jesus goes, he hangs out with the Samaritans for a while, and people, because of Jesus' words, they believe. And they believe that he is now the Savior of the world. Verse 43. After two days, he left forget. You know, I'm going to pray first. I got this urge to pray. God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you caused it to be written. We want to recognize the, the power and the strength that's in it and the holiness of it. And God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, to our hearts, to our minds, to whatever it is that, that we have walked into this place with. And God, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, let's go. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that prophets have no honor in their own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So after all the conversation with the woman at the well is over, after he hangs out for a couple days with the Samaritans, Jesus is back on his way. Now, he tells and he says this thing that a prophet is not welcomed in his own country. Now, this is this is not some um, big um, epiphany that he had. This is not something new that he's introducing. In fact, this was a common idea through the, um, through the old, the, the ancient times. Prophets, philosophers, they were not welcomed by the people that knew them. How can that person be smart? We've grown up with him. How can this one know what he's talking about? We've seen him as a child. And so Jesus isn't really saying anything new here. What I find interesting that, that he that is, says that it, it's in the text is that the Galileans, the place that he's going to, they welcome him. Now, it seems that they were at the Passover when Jesus kind of lost his cool a little bit, when he goes and he starts tipping tables and whipping people. All right. So, so imagine this site, this, this guy walks in to the temple. Now, now understand Jesus isn't our, and I call it because it's a video that I watched a long time ago. It's, he's not our white American Jesus. Okay. Jesus did not have product for his hair. All right. There was no cream rinse. There was no conditioner. There was no multi-level level scissors so he can have layers. There was no feathering. Um, Jesus was a Nazarene. Okay. That can just tell him that I'm a little busy right now and I'll get back to him. So Jesus, he's a Nazarene. <laughs> Oh, maybe he did your product. <laughs> so, so Jesus, he was a Nazarene. That means he didn't cut his hair for his whole life. Do you know what hair looks like after you haven't cut it for a bunch of years? It's called dreads, okay? And so Jesus was a really radical, he didn't have like blue eyes. He was probably very, very dark in skin. He walks in. Remember, he's, he's just about homeless. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. So he's traveling around. He walks in looking really radical. He gets really angry at all of these people that are turning his father's house into a den of robbers. And he makes a whip. 
And he starts chasing people. And he starts tipping tables. This is what the Galileans had saw. Now, it says that they were there and they saw this. The Galileans, remember, they are not so as religious as the people are in Jerusalem. So maybe, maybe they don't like the way the temple's being run. Maybe they don't like the way the merchants treat them. Maybe they don't like the prices that they got to pay for stuff. And so they welcome him. See, Jesus comes to Galilee with a little street cred behind him. And these people are happy to see him. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus heads back to Cana. This is where he changed the water into wine. Now, John mentions this again, and I don't believe that it's just Phil. I don't believe John's trying to just fill up some lines and he throws this back in there again. I don't believe scripture is that way in any way, shape, or form. It's there for a reason. And I believe that John wants us to understand without a shadow of a doubt that this thing, this event, this sign, this miracle of changing water into wine actually took place. This wasn't some fabricated, dramatic writing to to try to get across some spiritual truth. That Jesus actually went to a wedding, took water, changed it to wine. So that the world would begin to see who he actually is. And also to teach many, many spiritual truths along that way. See, it is my belief, and we're going to head down a little rabbit trail here, but that's okay. It's my belief that the miracles of Jesus, every one of them, happened. You see, we can't get into this discussion on, well, this one kind of makes sense, and I can understand that because, you know, Mars aligns with Jupiter, and then the beams come down, and that works. But, you know, the other ones, you know, I'm not too sure about this one, and, well, maybe that one. Because if you start to doubt any of them, eventually you will get to the resurrection. And when you get to the resurrection, and if you start to doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead, man, we got nothing. Our faith is worthless. I'm on the wrong path if the resurrection did not take place. Because that is the crux, that is the foundation of who Jesus is and what we believe. That he physically rose from the dead. So I believe through faith that all of the miracles of Jesus had taken place. And faith, aww, he's sad. And faith is not something that can just be explained away very easy. Faith is not something that we can put neatly into all these little steps for explanation. And I know that people say, well, well, how do you really know? I mean, how can you really be sure that that, that took place? How do you really know he died on the cross? Maybe just passed out because it hurt really bad. And, and maybe, maybe he, his legs got healed or, or maybe they didn't really break them at all. They just bruised his kneecaps when they, when they hit him. on the, uh, We cannot begin to question the miracles of Jesus. I believe they all happened I believe they all happened by faith and by faith alone. Faith is about passion. Faith is about a passion to live your life for something much bigger than what you can see, than something much bigger than what is right in front of you. Sometimes your faith does not make sense because it can't be. It's one of those things that cannot just be explained away with some contrite answer. And so I believe that the miracles of Jesus, every one of them, 
Every sign that he performed happened. And I believe this is why John puts this in here again, to make sure that we understand that the water to wine thing was a true event. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and where there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judah, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So there's this official, there's this royal official who works for the king, probably Herod. He works in Herod's court. He's probably has a, he's probably of high ranking. He comes from money or has money. He's educated. He has authority over people. He hears that Jesus is in town. His son is really sick and he goes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can do something about it. Now he has probably traveled with some people that are under his authority because back in these days, it was very unsafe to travel by yourself. So he brings his group of people. He sees Jesus and he begs Jesus to heal his son. Now, what I find is interesting that in John's gospel, the only sign or miracle up to this point is the changing of the water into wine. So either Jesus has been doing a lot of other things that we don't yet know about, or John hasn't written about in his gospel, or this guy is just taking a chance that, man, if this guy can do the water wine thing, maybe he can heal my son. Whatever the reason, this guy comes to Jesus and begs him to heal his son. And this idea of begging is, is not just asking. It's this persistent request. There's, there's something really urgent about this guy who is begging for his son's life. It would be like if your child was caught in a burning building and you're outside. You would not walk up to the, fire, uh, the fireman and say, listen, FYI, my, my, my son or, or my daughter, they're in the burning building. And you know, if you get a chance, maybe you can just pop in there and rescue them a little bit. No, you would be beside yourself. You would be begging for your child's life. Please help my son. And this is where this guy is right now. This has got to be quite the scene that's taking place. There's, there's a crowd of people because there's always a crowd around Jesus. There's this man of authority with people that he has probably brought that are under his authority. And he has, he is begging Jesus to do something about this. Please come and save my son. In fact, later on, he'll say, he'll say, um, before my child dies. And, and this whole idea of before my child dies, it's something much more endearing. It's like, please come before my boy dies, please. And this is all playing out in front of all these people. And, and I got to be up front with you. Jesus responds, man, it's, it's pretty harsh. I mean, at the first reading, it's, it's not what I would expect from Jesus. Listen to what he says. This guy's begging, okay? Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, him, you will never believe. Well, I have a little trouble with that right off the bat. I mean, okay, this guy is pouring out his guts for Jesus to come heal his son. And Jesus kind of gives this this harsh answer. And and I got to think, like, Jesus loves kids. I mean... I mean, he loves, there's even a song, right? Jesus, I don't know. But, but there's a song that Jesus loves the little children. And he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such, of the, such as these. So what's going on? I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, you love the children, and yet this guy is begging for his son's life. And you come out with, with that statement? Really? But I believe that Jesus is not just speaking to him. Remember, there are a crowd of people watching and waiting. They're watching this whole thing play out in front of them. And they're wondering, does he stay or or does he go? 
Is, is he going to heal or, or is he not going to heal? And Jesus, Jesus knows their hearts. He's God. He knows what they're thinking. He knows that he knows that if he decides to go to this man's house and heal, that these people are going to come along and they're going to follow. They want to see the healing. Or he also knows that what they're thinking, well, well, can he, can he do it from here? Can he, can he, is he going to do it at all? And Jesus knows what's, what is in these people's hearts. And I'm sure they're questioning, does he stay or, do, or does he go? With that one statement, Jesus affirms in these people that they are lacking something. And they're lacking something very important. They're lacking this, this deep, trusting position of their heart that really is the foundation of faith. These people that are around Jesus are looking for something spectacular, something sensational. They're waiting to be entertained by, by God's stuff, something cool, something very different. Now, I have to imagine that the signs that Jesus was, is performing, they are not in the ordinary realm of everyday life. And so these people are really interested. They want to see something amazing. Now, Jesus will never disregard people who just come for the miracle. He feeds 5,000. He's like, yeah, you're following me around because you got food. He never disregards them. But he will always point out that there's something lacking in their faith. Now, there's these stories in Matthew and Luke. Um, Jesus is, in Matthew, the story is Jesus baptized. The Spirit of God comes down and says, this is my son. And, and um, Luke kind of leaves that part out a little bit. But, but the thing is, that they get to the des- Jesus gets to the desert for 40 days. And he's fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now, uh, turn to me with, to Luke chapter 4. Uh, I want to read this to you. This is one of his temptations. Luke chapter 4. Verse 9, the, dev, the, yeah, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike. I'm sorry, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So, the devil gets a hold of Jesus, brings him to the highest point of the temple. The temple is a crowded place all the time. And he says, says to him, listen, if you're the son of God, so the first thing the devil wants to do to Jesus, God just said, this is my son. And so now he's, he's questioning, do you really believe that, that you're God's son? If you are the son of God, he says, Throw yourself off. You know that God's not going to let anything happen to you. Go ahead. J- do it. Do it. And, and Jesus said, man, I, I ain't testing God. That's not the way I roll. But there's another thing that's happening here. The devil, Satan, wants Jesus to entertain the masses with some God miracle. The devil wants to see if Jesus will, will bring some excitement into a lot of people's lives that may not live such exciting lives. And Jesus won't fall for it. Could you imagine this? You look up on the grain. Okay, maybe not the grain. It's not so tall. You just bust a leg. But okay, something really, the Catholic church down there, and you see this guy standing there, 
And he just jumps off. And I don't know if you can see the angels, but, but he just kind of floats to the ground. Man, we'd be talking about that for a long time. That would be really cool. I would probably go to that church. We'd close this one down. We'd head down there because that would be really cool. And this is the temptation that Satan wants for Jesus. Will you entertain these people with God stuff? Jesus will not do it. He will not do it here in standing on the temple. And he will not do it in the story of healing the official son. Now, let's bring this into what this kind of means for us. We all, at some time in our life, and maybe even now, we all use Jesus, or have used Jesus. We all have had used church at some point for a cure for our boredom. That, that we Christians sometimes, not all the time, but there are Christians that use church, that use religion, that use Jesus the same way they would use drugs or the abuse of alcohol, promiscuous sex, TV, movies, music, whatever it is. We use it as an escape to escape the boredom of what we consider our lives to be. Eugene Peterson writes this, that he says that we package Jesus as a commodity for a weekend distraction. Listen, I know, you know, that there is no shortage of dull people just moving through life in a dead-end mentality. We can look around, and there's people that just, that just, seem, to, just seem to be satisfied with just moving on through, nothing happening. And they kind of move from one little fix to another. They try to, to entertain themselves with all these little things. They kind of bounce around, and there's no direction, and there's no purpose, and there's no anything in their life. And that's why I believe that many, are, are, the human race is open to addiction. Because we're trying to squelch the boredom that we feel. And so we use the, the abuse of alcohol. We use the, the abuse of drugs and all these other things just to try to get out of boredom. Or maybe we ride the coattails of somebody else. Your favorite sports star, your favorite movie star, your favorite musician. Mark hit on it a few weeks ago. And we looked at it again, and this whole theme keeps coming back and back and back. That Jesus had come to give us life and to give it in abundance. He wants us to live a life of passion and purpose within the context of deep faith. He wants us to live openly. There's this poet's that they, they write this song that said to live with arms wide open, engaging and embracing the joy and the beauty that, that is in this world. I believe, and I also believe that Jesus wants us to see with, with our eyes wide open, to see the brokenness and the hurt and the pain in this world and do something about it. Not just go along with your head buried in the sand and just live a humdrum, dull life, looking for the next fix, looking for the next thing that's going to try to take, put a little excitement into your boring life. I'm not saying you all have boring lives. That's the work you all got to do on your own. What I'm saying is Jesus has come to give life and to give it in abundance. Here is the danger, though. We make Jesus, we can make church an escape from the world. We can, we can 
uh, Peterson writes this. He says, we make Jesus an impersonal rescue, an irresponsible diversion, a manipulative, a manipulative reprieve from ordinary life. And this is the danger that we can fall into. Hollywood, TV, sports, music, they do a great job at, at giving us a diversion from life. Okay, you, you can watch a movie, you can turn on TV, you can turn on Sunday football games, you can plug in your iPod. I love my iPod. My iPod is my close friend after my wife, of course. And, and so, huh, huh? And, and so, I mean, all these, and it gives us a diversion. And it seems like the responsibilities that we have of, of life and family and friends and, and kids and, and our job, they can just melt away for a while. And see, this is, this is a good thing. I believe that that's okay. We all need a little downtime. We all need a little diversion in our life. But what happens is when those things become an addiction and all we do is run from the everyday life and we begin to use Jesus and church as a diversion. When we make those things out to be more than they really are, we're in trouble. We've lost our way. I went to a, um, a Giants game a bunch of years ago and um, really good seats like um, kind of in the corner in the end zone, six, eight rows back, sweet. I'm thinking, whoa. And, and so they were playing um, the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, Tom, correct me, they don't like each other, huh? And, and, I, and I noticed that, you know, because, and so, so we're sitting there, you know, and, and I got my popcorn or whatever I had, and because you can't buy beer at one of those places because you get $12 and it's a Dixie cup. But anyway, um, so, so I, had, I had my soda, my water, and we're sitting there. And so a few rows in front of us, um, some Philadelphia fans come in, and they're young. They're young kids. They're probably in their mid-20s, and they come in with their Dixie cups of beer and all their food, and they're all, like, eagled out, man. They got their shirts on. Their faces are painted, and I'm like, wow, that's, 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 that's chutzpah right there. I mean, I mean, you got to... And, and they're like in enemy territory, right? And they just plop down, and they don't care, and there's a couple girls, and there's a couple young guys. And so, you know, there's people throwing, you know, popcorn stuff at them, and it's ha-ha-ha. And, and so the Giants lose, go figure. And, and so as they're losing... These group of young people, they're getting more happy. And all of the drunker fans around us, they're not so happy. And so now things begin to heat up a little bit. And I'm watching this unfold. And I, and I realize at that point that I could never take my son to a football game. At least not that close because, oh my goodness. I mean, we're talking like language that embarrassed me. And so all of a sudden there's this exchange going on. It's the end of the game. Giants lose. People are starting to leave. And, and there's an exchange going on with these young people and some older people my age over here. And before I know it, it is, it's way out of hand. And there are guys my age yelling the most disgusting, vile things to these young girls who could be, the, like, they could, they could be their, her father. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm thinking like I'm going to break up a lynching or I'm going to get beat up because these people are going to come flying down here and, and I'm just going to get trampled. And the whole time I'm saying to myself, man, this, this is a game. It's a football game. It's not football life or death. It's, it's not... It's not Oh my goodness, you know, unless these guys bet their entire home on the Giants winning, but that, that would be dumb. They obviously are Giants fans. They know better. And so I'm a Giants fan, Tom. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this, this is a game. What is wrong with people? See, when we get addicted to the spectacle and the sensational, we're, gonna, we're, in, we're in danger of losing our way. 
we're in danger of, of just going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we begin to vicariously live our lives through someone else, through our favorite rock star, through our favorite sports figure, through our favorite band, through our favorite movie, whatever it is. And we are in danger of becoming spectators to life instead of actually engaging life. And we become couch potatoes or Farmville potatoes. And, and, and so, hey, hey, hey. I am 42 points away from level 19. Do not laugh. Okay. Only a few of you know that. And that's okay. That's good. That's good. And, and, and instead of engaging life, we watch it. Now, many churches, many churches make church into a show. Make church into entertainment. They need the latest and the greatest and the biggest and the best. The cutting edge technology, the well-produced dramas, the lasers and the lights. Listen, it's easy to draw a crowd with all that stuff because that stuff is really cool. But they make church into a show. There's one church in um, down south. They have their church of 20,000 people. And so they have different locations and they beam their pastor in with a hologram to preach. Okay. So he's at his church and he, he gets beamed in on a, that's pretty, okay. That's pretty cool. Okay. Well, I'll give you that. But, but I mean, <laughs> but you know, and, and, and so there's this sensational thing that's going on and people become addicted to that mentality. People become, they, they don't come to be transformed. They come to be entertained. And they, become, they come to see the, the spectacle. They come to escape life for a while and see the sensational church service that gets put on. And they forget why they should be there. And then, if it's anything less than that, they become bored. And it's time to head to a different church. Now, I'm so glad that, that you all are here because I know that you're not here for the sensational. <laughs> you're at the Grange, Okay. But listen, I'm not talking about not being creative in church. We've seen flashes of creativity. A couple of weeks ago, Mark blew up water. How cool is that? But it, I'm not talking about object lessons. I'm not talking about creatively communicating the gospel. I'm talking about when the show, the entertainment, the sensationalism begins to be the driving force of what you do at church. And we make it a diversion so people can come and just forget about life for a while. I don't believe the gospel needs lasers. I don't believe the gospel needs lights and the best of everything. The gospel, the words of God are strength and power and they're words for um, reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, hear me. I am not against nice things, okay? I like quality stuff in church. Um, meeting with, with Tim and Ashley, and we're trying to figure out how we can best use downstairs for the nursery ministry and how we can best use downstairs for the kids' ministry. And we're running into some, some problems, but we're trying to figure it out. And I would love to have a better space down there. I would love not to be worried if the kids touch the floor, they're going to catch something. So we're, you know, we're buying flooring for, for downstairs. And, and, and I get that. I, I, I don't mind. I like good sound systems so, so it sounds good and things that we can record our... our um, our sermons 
and, and put them online. And we have a nice website. I'm not against nice things. And you know that I'm, I'm not all about making church this comfy, cozy country club atmosphere. We're always going to, wherever we are, we're always going to stay just a little bit ghetto just to remind us that church isn't about us, but it's about what we can do for the kingdom of God. But I'll be straight up with you a few weeks ago when it was 119 degrees in here. That was a little much, okay? And, and so I'm not against nice things. What I don't want us to ever be is a church that is going to entertain people instead of giving them the transforming word of God. That is the danger. And, and we're continuing to look at creativity and how we can better do those things, but we're not going to entertain. We will not be distracted. Because if we do, we're no better than the NFL. We are no better than the NBA. We're no better than Hollywood. We have the word of God. And this, this book alone, read in the dark recess of someone's closet, can change a life with no lights, no bells, no whistles, no lasers, no holograms, no nothing, just the word of God. And when we lose our way in that and make church entertainment, man, we're in trouble. Jesus could have jumped off the temple. He could have wowed the crowds, man, just come floating down like, whoa, dreads up in the air maybe because it would have been cool and just kind of float. I don't know if he had dreads, so don't email me on that. Um, so, and he, and he just he would float down on the ground. Jesus could have cured the, the official son. He could have taken him and, he, and, he, and went with him to his home and the crowds would have followed and that day they would have saw a miracle and the, Jesus would have laid his hands on that little boy and he would have been healed. Jesus could have done it. But Jesus... He's not interested in entertaining us. Jesus is not interested in taking our minds off our life. Jesus is not at all interested in helping us escape our life. Remember, he came to give life, to give it in abundance. He came to show us how to live our life, how to engage life every day in the ordinary, in the mundane, and how to make it something that's beautiful and joyous and how to look into the world and to see where it's broken and go with passion and faith and try to fix it. This is why Jesus came. He came to tell us that there's something much bigger going on than what we can do and create ourselves. There are depths of beauty and joy that have yet to be discovered by any of us. And they're all outside of these walls in this very neighborhood, in the house across the street, in the, in the shop down the road, in the coffee shop that you go into in the morning to get your coffee, that you would engage these people. This is what Jesus came to teach us, to live openly and deeply with the people here and now, with people you actually know, not have pictures or posters on your wall or carry little playing cards with, people that you actually know. This is what Jesus has called us to, to celebrate our own journey in all of its ups and all of its downs, to walk through and celebrate and not live someone else's journey. Not look for an escape of entertainment, the spectacle, the sensational. Where can I find the fix now? He will not get sucked into the mentality of this group. In fact, he will heal this, ki- this guy's son. He will do it on his own terms. This is going to be one of them, their uh, long-distance healings that he will do. Listen to what, after the man pleads one last time, listen to what he says. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And again, it's like, please come before my boy dies. And Jesus, he said, go. Your son 
will live. Now, this had to be an unexpected answer. This guy's begging Jesus, come on, come to, come to my house. My boy is dying, please. And he's begging in front of all these people. And these people are waiting to see what he's going to do. And Jesus, and, and Jesus just says to him, go, your, your son will live. And this has got to create a very intense moment for this guy. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus looking into this guy's eyes. This guy looking back, not knowing what to do. Do, do I take him at his word? Or do, what do I do? There's this, there has to be this awkward moment of silence of what do I do now? I've begged him to come. He must think that in order for this miracle thing, the sign to work for his son to be healed, that Jesus actually has to be there. And Jesus just looks at him says, go, your son will live. And so this is, this, is, this is a crossroad moment for this man. This is a moment of truth. This is the decision that he has to make. Will he take Jesus at his word or will he not? And, and for me, in my brain, I wonder what would happen if he didn't. Would we even read the story? Would it even be part of John's gospel? I don't know. But he did. There was, there, was no, there was no praying. There was no Jesus like, whoa. There was no floating in the air. There was no like, like I love the movies when Jesus is doing a miracle. He puts his hand up like this. He's like, whoa. And you know, like, get out of him, demon. You know, there's all this spectacle, Hollywood stuff. There was nothing. He just uttered five words to this guy. Go. Your son will live. And this guy took him at his word. Five words were enough to move this man from a shallow, I need to see a sign faith into something much, much deeper. Five words were enough to move him to a faith that didn't need to be entertained, that didn't need to see the spectacle, a faith that, a faith that didn't need an escape from life. A faith that cannot be explained. How do, you, how do you trust and how do you say, okay, I'm just going to go. When a guy says, go, your son will be healed. After you just begged him to come. He's moved from a shallow faith to something much, much deeper. To a faith that actually has brought life. And when his son is finally healed, um, his whole family engages that same faith. He saw God at work. God at work, not through the spectacle, not through the sensational, but God at work through his word, and everything changed. Everything changed in this man's life. The crowd that day, the crowd lost out on the show. The crowd lost out on the spectacle. The crowd didn't get what they paid for. There was nothing amazing about it. There was just a little begging going on and five words spoken by Jesus. But there was one man who trusted Jesus at his word. Received a miracle. And believed. And so where are we? Do we trust Jesus at his word? Or do we need something more, something entertaining, something that just pulls us out of the humdrum of life? Listen, if you're a boring person, boring is going to follow you wherever you go. If you go to a lot of different churches and you're bored there, well, maybe it's not the church. Maybe it's you. Just saying. Don't leave if you're bored. I'm, 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 just, I'm just saying, you know. 
<laughs> and, 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 so, and so, will we trust Jesus at his word? And will we learn how to engage life and look for the depths of beauty and joy and faith and look to where it's broken and it needs for the Spirit of God to work through his people to go out and engage and then fix it? This morning as we um, celebrate communion in Mark, I'm sorry, on my iPod, there's a playlist that says communion. Um, during communion, could you play those songs? Nine Inch Nails and um, Tool, yes. Um, and so as we, as we <laughs> great segue to communion, as we, um, <laughs> as we take communion, I want, you to, I want you to begin to have a dialogue with God. And, and where is it that you have, have needed to see something amazing to happen for you to believe? And begin to confess that thing. And just release that and say, you know what, God? I want to take you at your word. Jesus, I want to take you at your word. I remember Chris, Chris told me a story that during this whole thing with Charlotte, that he was praying and he just had a word come to him that, She's going to be all right. And he took that, that thing that you can't explain, that faith that, that just can't be mustered, that didn't make any sense, and he believed it. And today we got to see Charlotte here. Will you take God at his word? As you're ready to go to the communion table, um, you could take those elements and sit back down, and we will take communion together, and then we will end uh, our time together with the song.